We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. Hello and welcome to another chapter of Womance's public access read-along of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. I'm your even chapter reader, Isabel. I'm the odd chapter reader, Morgan. And this week, we're reading chapter 38. Morgan, will you remind listeners what happened last time? With great pleasure. Uh, Last chapter, chapter 37... Uh, Lizzie is about to leave Rosings, and Catherine de Bourgh seems suddenly very interested in her staying, uh, as well as her methods of packing, etc., etc. Lizzie is more interested on reflecting on the new information she has received via Darcy's redress about her family, and she's kind of she's got some regrets. Got some shame. Yeah, it's got some shame. But that's exactly right. She's moving right on down the road. Moving on down, moving on She's got to go home. Chapter 38. On Saturday morning, Elizabeth and Mr. Collins met for breakfast a few minutes before the others appeared, and he took the opportunity of paying the parting civilities, which he deemed indispensably necessary. <laughs> I know not, Miss Elizabeth, said he, whether Mrs. Collins has yet expressed her sense of your kindness in coming to us, but I am very certain you will not leave the house without receiving her thanks for it. The favor of your company has been much felt, I assure you, and know how little there is to tempt any one to our humble abode, our plain manner of living, our small rooms and few domestics, <laughs> and the little we see of the world must make Hunsford extremely dull to a young lady like yourself. But I hope you will believe us grateful for the condescension, and that we have done everything in our power to prevent your spending your time unpleasantly. Elizabeth was eager with her thanks and assurances of happiness. She had spent six weeks with great enjoyment, and the pleasure of being with Charlotte and the kind attention she had received must make her feel the obliged. Mr. Collins was gratified, and with a more smiling solemnity replied, "'It gives me the greatest pleasure to hear that you have passed your time not disagreeably. We have certainly done our best, and most fortunately having it in our power to introduce you to very superior society from our connection with Rosings, the frequent means of varying the humble home scene. I think we may flatter ourselves that your Hunsford visit cannot have been entirely irksome. Our situation with regard to Lady Catherine's family is indeed the sort of extraordinary advantage and blessing which few can boast. You see on what a footing we are. You see how continually we are engaged there. In truth, I must acknowledge that with all the disadvantages of this humble parsonage, I should not think anyone abiding in it at any object of compassion. (laughs) 
Well, they are sharers of our intimacies at Rosings. <laughs> Words were insufficient for the elevation of his feelings, and he was obliged to walk about the room while Elizabeth tried to unite the civility and truth in a few short sentences. <laughs> You may, in fact, carry a very favorable report of us into Hertfordshire, my dear cousin. I flatter myself at least that you will be able to do so. Lady Catherine's great attentions to Mrs. Collins, you've been a daily witness of. And altogether, I trust it does not appear that your friend has drawn an unfortunate, but on this point, it will be as well to be silent. Only let me assure you, my dear Miss Elizabeth, that I can, from my heart, most cordially wish you equal felicity in marriage. My dear Charlotte and I have but one mind and one way of thinking. There is in everything a most remarkable resemblance of character and ideas between us. We seem to have been designed for each other. Oh, Mr. Collins. (laughs) Mr. Collins. I was like, that first bout of dialogue you did, I was like, oh, he's kind of funny. He's kind of mellowed in his marriage. And then just on this point, it will be sufficient to be silent. (laughs) She's having a great ass time. <laughs> you could tell everybody. Everybody in Hertfordshire best know that we are amazing. We we love each other. We are incredibly happy. And we go to Rosings three times a week. <laughs> Elizabeth could safely say that it was a great happiness where that was the case. And with equal sincerity could add that she firmly believed and rejoiced in his domestic comforts. She was not sorry, however, to have the recital of them interrupted by the entrance of the lady from whom they sprung. Poor Charlotte. It was melancholy to leave her to such society. But she had chosen it with eyes open, and though evidently regretting that her visitors were to go, she did not seem to ask for compassion. Her home and her housekeeping, her parish and her poultry, and all their dependent concerns had not yet lost their charms. At length, the chaise arrived, the trunks were fastened on, the parcels placed within, and it was pronounced to be ready. After an affectionate parting between the friends, Elizabeth was attended to the carriage by Mr. Collins, and as they walked down the garden, he was commissioning her with his best respects to all her family, not forgetting his thanks for the kindness he received at Longburn in the winter, and his compliments to Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, though unknown. He then handed her in, Maria followed, and the door was on the point of being closed when he suddenly reminded them, with some consternation, that they had hitherto forgotten to leave any message for the ladies of Rosings. But, he added, you will of course wish to have your humble respects delivered to them, with your grateful thanks for their kindness while you have been here. Elizabeth made no objection. The door was then allowed to be shut, and the carriage drove off. "'Good gracious!' cried Mariah after a few minutes' silence. "'It seems but a day or two since we first came, and yet how many things have happened!' "'A great many indeed,' said her companion with a sigh. "'We've died nine times at Rosings, besides drinking tea there twice. "'How much I shall have to tell!' Elizabeth privately (laughs) added. "'And how much I shall have to conceal!' "'Oh, God!' (laughs) "'Their journey was performed without much conversation.' or any alarm, and within four hours of their leaving Hunsford, they reached Mr. Gardner's house, where they were to remain a few days. Jane looked well, and Elizabeth had little opportunity of studying her spirits amidst the various engagements which the kindness of her aunt had reserved for them. But Jane was to go home with her, and at Longbourn there would be leisure enough for observation. It was not without an effort, meanwhile, that she could wait 
even for Longbourn, before she told her sister of Mr. Darcy's proposals, to know that she had the power of revealing what would be what would so exceedingly astonish Jane and must at the same time so highly gratify whatever her own vanity she had not yet been able to reason away was such a temptation to openness as nothing could have conquered but the state of indecision in which she remained as to the extent of what she should communicate and her fear if she once entered on the subject of being hurried into repeating something of Bingley which might only grieve her sister further been there been there sitting on a bad boy piece of information right and just like having to sit on it weighing the consequences of it and then not having the person that you confide in to like parse it through with you Mm -hmm. this also seems to be a marker of adulthood (laughs) yeah withholding yeah judicious withholding yeah it's the worst though it is It might be the worst part of adulthood. Certainly for chronic tellers such as myself. Yeah, and myself. Yeah. I didn't want to speak for you. (laughs) We are of of the same mind (laughs) on this point. I think, like, this is also... Imagine this book, you're receiving it chapter by chapter, Mm. and this is a chapter you get. What Mm. a bummer. It is a bummer of a chapter. Tension building, perhaps. It's also, I think, one of the things on this reading that strikes me most is, like, how fucking weird and dramatic Lizzie is. Oh, yeah. And how much I will conceal. Yeah. Corny. (laughs) Corny. But, like, in no visual medium is Lizzie ever corny or overly dramatic or, like, deep in her feels. Uh, Yeah. And that I think there is, I've been thinking about this lately, like the trend with novels that have been popular, I think of Otessa Moshfeg and uh, Sally Rooney and, you know, these kind of darker, certainly in the case of Otessa, darker um, Lana Del Rey vinyl mm-hmm. uh, stories, <laughs> um, which I enjoy. I'm not saying that to be, you know, negative. But it just feels like there's so much space for sincerity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that looks like corniness mm. outside looking in. Maybe. But then, like, why has the trend been to, like, take these pieces out of Lizzie? Because they're embarrassing. Oh. And Lizzie can't be embarrassing. She can't. She has to be cool. It is like this real instinct. Like the common thread, I think, between Kira Knightley and the miniseries, which Mm -hmm. are kind of like the two tentpole Mm -hmm. adaptations, I would say. Even though they're like vastly different performances, they're both kind of the smirking cool girl. Absolutely, they are. And there does, I will say, there is something in the way... I would say Jane Austen approaches Lizzie that she thinks of her as a smirking cool girl. Mm-hmm. But certainly in the first half. Yeah. yeah. But Jane Austen's version of a smirking cool girl, and this happens all the time in romance, especially contemporary romance, is a goofy goober. Yeah. Says corny shit, but you're supposed to like take it on the chin and be like, oh, this is. This cool. is a cool, unaffected human being. Yeah. I'm having a hard time thinking of a contemporary romance female main character who when i was meant to think they were cool who wasn't actually saying 
cheesy stuff like this, mm-hmm. you know? Do I say, and like now I'm like, do I, I'm pretty cool. Do I say cheesy stuff to myself in my head? I can't speak to your thoughts in your head. I think I probably do. I just don't think of them as corny. cheesy because they're not cheesy to you. Yeah. And I think that's what Jane Austen is doing here. She's just making it public. How embarrassing to be a writer. You have to have a real, a real, um, I actually got in an argument with a friend about this in grad school where I was like, all published writers have to have a moment where they're like, this is going to be published. How embarrassing. Like, how, like, blind to yourself do you have to be to, like, go through with that? She was like, that's not true. And I was like, I don't think they can be self-aware. I don't think you can be 100% self-aware, be any kind of celebrity. And indeed, like, authors, I think, are a version of celebrity. Yeah, and I I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, like, you can't be 100% aware. Like, how many times have we seen even the performance of... A romance author in particular, you know, on any social media being like, uh, was feeling it today and then I just deleted 500 pages. It's all crap. I don't know how I'm going to get these two together. And then like three days later, they're like, killing it. (laughs) It's like, I think the the middle ground between those two things is probably really i think a yeah. writer ha- like hits a stride and is like oh shit this is so good like i'm gonna fucking win a pulitzer yeah. like whatever i'm gonna be long listed for the booker prize and i think they're like <laughs> is this the greatest thing that right? has ever been said ever right and i think authors feel that way and i think they probably feel that way about scenes that are quite cheesy. Yeah. I bet Jane Austen thought that was a very witty turn of phrase. Especially like in the contrast yeah. with Mariah where she's like, look at this Liberty gibbet and then yeah. look at my cool girl. Like Jane, she could like, have just like crossed out that line. Yeah. The text would have been on the same path. Absolutely. Like as- Elizabeth is mentally smoking a, a cigarette. cigarette. <laughs> we already know how she feels about poor Mariah. Oh my gosh. I think like, well, I'm also thinking of... And don't look this up mm. if you don't have to. But Jonathan Safran Foer's emails to Natalie Portman, mm. where he's narrativizing his life, and it's you're like, oh, like this is clearly him writing this. But my God, is this embarrassing? Like they're not self aware. <laughs> like you have to be though. I I don't know if I admire it or despise it more. I think, like, it comes in waves, right? Yeah. Like, you have to have the hubris of thinking mm. that, like, this is good shit. Hubris is right. And I think writers are also cripplingly self-conscious of their writing. At least writers of my acquaintance and writers that, like, yeah. I've encountered at, like, book talks and stuff. Like, they never seem particularly confident, even when they write confident characters. Yeah, and I think feel like you're going to vomit. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like I look at a writer and I'm like, you are profoundly uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all I wanted to do is ask you a question about your process. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> yeah. It is weird. I, I'm also thinking of, so this uh, film critic for a respected publication uh, wrote a, a piece on bodies, 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 mm-hmm. and basically suggested that this movie uh, was too sexy Mm. and that it was like from their writing it was clear that they had just fixated on one of the main actors and was just like not letting it go and everyone was like this is embarrassing it's like showing not only this writer's 
sexual sexual preferences and attractions but also how like tied up it is and like race and femininity and like it's embarrassing that someone could be that unself-aware and then they found out that this writer was you know an a, 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 had parents who were very influential in the publishing industry mm. and would i say a nepo baby well i know a lot of people who can write better film criticism than that who are not writing film criticism for the paper of public record in the united states and they came out and were like, I think I'm like, I'm not a great writer. I just happen to be exceptionally talented at this particular kind of writing. And I think it's that hedging that would carry you through. I know how that person got their kind of blind confidence, but like, or hubris, as you like accurately put it. But it's interesting to see like Jane Austen suffers this. Yes. <laughs> We all suffer. And like, this is like, you've said it multiple times where it's like, if I just had a red pen, this book would have been so much better. Perfect. Right? But that's my own hubris too. I was, I was listening to something recent. I was listening to Twisted Love. Mm. And I was like, if I had a red pen, I had another one of those moments, which is like another form of hubris. And of course, an untested one, at least writer, published writers are testing their hubris. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to publish Twisted Love with my lines crossed out. Although, and this goes out to the listener who gave us seven comments on SoundCloud. Each was correcting our spoken grammar. <laughs> Someone did that? Someone read, read Pandar episode. Um, which episode? I don't know. It was like, it was a weird one. It was like a super random one, like 89 or something. And I was like, and we had a bunch of comments and I was like, what is happening over here? And I like read it and I was like, oh, a grammarian. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the conversation. Hello and welcome to the podcast. And I think like coming out of fan fiction as I do, and we've talked about this on our fan fiction episodes where like writers there are also like enacting a kind of hubris where it's like they're publishing but not publishing in not the same really, way yeah, hedging a little bit they're, well not but really but they also hedge at the top where they're like oh this is yes. my first whatever and like no flames please and like you know it's like this is my first time in the fandom maybe i don't know everything maybe i don't know all the rules and it's like that is my experience of writers writ large spoken grammar yeah you do you want well we can go through the comments we're not going to do that for you now because that's not what the show <laughs> Another is about bonus. <laughs> us correcting our <laughs> spoken grammar um i will say that's not the first time i was i was in french class in college and my teacher was actually russian from russia originally and she i was really struggling with the translation and she was like well, how would you say that in english and I said it, and she was like, okay, it's incorrect in English as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then she just walked away from me. <laughs> Nothing as demoralizing as the disappointment of a Russian expat. <laughs> she was just like... You might as well have just disappointed Dostoevsky, you know what I mean? Oh my god, don't say that. I don't think I could live with myself if I disappointed Dostoevsky. That fucking weirdo? But she she later on sent us an email that was like, I thought you'd be interested in this documentary about a famous French artist. And it was Banksy. Mm. And I was like, 
actually. <laughs> With that. <laughs> Don't loosen your prejudices. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe loosen your pride, especially <laughs> if you're a Russian grammarian. <laughs> Mwah. Mwah. Wooly guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>